Amen. Well, we are uh, continuing our look at this famous uh, penitent psalm of David, Psalm 51, and it's a, a well-loved psalm and a very meaningful psalm, and so I decided to spend two weeks on it. Last week, we looked at kind of the historical background of the psalm and uh, kind of t- t- took a look at the title, and, and this is one of those interesting psalms that gives us a lot of key information right at the beginning of the psalm under the heading. In our English translations, it'll say Psalm 51, but then it'll say this, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so last week we kind of took a look at the historical context from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, which is where this account of David and Bathsheba and her husband Uriah and Nathan's confrontation as a prophet of David uh, takes place. You know, First and Second Samuel are historical narratives telling us historical events that happen uh, in ancient times. And uh, that biblical text told the story of how David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then to try to cover it up, he uh, had her husband killed. And so adultery and murder. And then for uh, almost a year, he sort of lived in denial, covered it up until Nathan the prophet confronted him. And we read that very moving account of the conversation when Nathan used a, uh, an illustration uh, to get David's attention. And David realized that what he had done uh, was sinful. So last week we talked about sin in general, about how it's a terrible foe about how it'll take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay, about how it has serious consequences, it destroys lives, um, and it really it wreaks havoc on all of creation. It's because of sin that men are consigned to hell, apart from the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ. And so last week we looked at the life cycle of, of sin, and we saw that there were four stages in that life cycle. We said sin wills. The sin is a power within us, part of the depravity of man that's constantly beckoning us to give in to temptation. But then we said sin thrills. It's very enticing. And the pleasures of sin are just for a moment, though, because it also chills when we come to reality with what we've done. And ultimately, sin kills. That sin is an equal opportunity killer. Its ultimate goal is to kill. Satan, when he brought sin into the world by tempting Adam and Eve, he brought death into the world. Adam and Eve were warned by God, don't eat of that one fruit, because if you do, you're going to die. And of course they did, and so they did. And uh, we know that sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so we concluded that we should stop fooling around with sin, because it's not a game. But how do we do that exactly? How can the believer win this battle with sin? And that's the question we want to address in part two of this little two-part look at Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, you can kind of follow along with me in Psalm 51. We're going to look at just about every verse in this passage as we take a closer look at David's heart after he had owned up to his sin. And we can learn a lot from David's psalm written under the inspiration of the Spirit here about how we can avoid making the same mistake that he did. But before we dive in, I want to review the biblical teaching on the depravity of man. That is, that every human being born is born dead in his trespasses and sin and is utterly sinful. And there are two senses in which sin has to be cured. 
in the first place, it's got to be cured judicially. We are all at the moment of birth under the penalty of sin. And left unremedied, we will die in unbelief. Jesus said this very plainly in John chapter 8, verse 24. If you don't believe I am He, then you will die in your sins and face an eternal punishment. So that has to be dealt with. That penalty of sin has to judicially, positionally be dealt with so that we are no longer under the wrath of God but, and no longer sons of wrath, but instead sons of God, a child of God by faith alone in Christ alone. But secondly, sin has to be cured in a practical sense. After all, people don't stop sinning once they become a Christian, right? Uh, sin is an earthly problem that will be with us until we leave the confines of earth and enter heaven. As long as we're walking this sin-stricken earth uh, under the curse of sin, we're going to be dealing with that sin willing us to come back over to the old man, if you will. So we need to be self-aware and realize what it is that makes us susceptible to sin. And Psalm 51 gives us a glimpse at a restored heart. But in the process, it also alerts us to the problems that led David to sin and how we might be able to avoid those in our own lives. So we said that the depravity of man, just to review the definition, I know this is rather wordy, but it's important to understand what terms mean because there are a lot of people out there that misunderstand the depravity of man and are giving false definitions of it. The depravity of man does not mean that everyone is as sinful in his actions as he could possibly be. In other words, some people say this person is you know, more depraved because they're a, a, a serial killer or they've done terrible things and this person is not as much depraved. No, we're all depraved. And depravity isn't defined by how much sin you perform or what levels of sin you perform. We're all separated from a holy God. That's what the depravity of man uh, says. It does not teach that everyone's going to indulge in every form of sin, or, nor does it teach that a person uh, cannot perform morally righteous acts. Unbelievers can do the right thing, but it doesn't mean they're not depraved, and it doesn't mean they still are under the penalty of sin and need to have that sin remedy. What the depravity of, mean, uh, depravity of man means is that every person is born under the penalty of, and condemnation of sin, namely eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. And apart from receiving the free gift of eternal life by faith in Christ, men will die in that condition. But today we want to talk about the two aspects of the problem of sin. One of them is our position as I just said. The other is our practice. Even once we've received the free gift of eternal life by, by faith in Christ, we've become born again. We are now uh, a child of God, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We still sin. Our practice doesn't always measure up to our position. So biblically, our position is what the Bible calls justification, and our practice is what we often call sanctification. Our position rescues us uh, from the penalty of sin when by faith we trust in Jesus Christ alone, where sanctification is what rescues us from sin's power. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ by believing the gospel, trusting that He died in your place on the cross, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers freely to you the gift of eternal life if you'll simply trust Him for it, if you've trusted in Him to forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life, then your position is now secure in Christ. You're no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God. 
No longer a son of disobedience, but a son of obedience. You're born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. But our practice is the issue. And sanctification occurs at various points in time as we walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, as we yield to the Holy Spirit's prompting in our life and resist the devil and resist the old man. So when we talk about our position, this is what we commonly call salvation. If we say, you know, have you been saved or would you like to be saved or how long have you been saved? We're talking about justification. Are you in Christ? Because at one point in time, and it only takes one, you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. Our practice is more an issue of discipleship. Who are you living like? Are you living like the new person you are in Christ or are you living like the old man? So the goal, and this is the reason we're talking about the weight of sin from Psalm 51, is for our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ. That really is what the whole Christian life boils down to. How much does your practice in life reflect who you are in Christ? If you're a Christian, Christian means Christ-like, then you ought to live like it. Now, when Christians don't live like Christ, it doesn't mean they're not saved. There are serious consequences, as we saw last week, for believers who sin. But it has no bearing on our eternal destiny because salvation is not earned by works, nor can it be lost by works. It is a free gift offered uh, by God to mankind the moment we place our faith in Him. So as long as we're topside this earth, as long as we're living out our days uh, till either the Lord comes back or we go the way of all flesh, our goal is to reflect who we really are. We want to get up each day and say, I want to live like Christ, not like the old man. It's that battle that we talked about last week, which the Apostle Paul himself no less than the greatest missionary of all time who met the Lord on the road to Damascus, believed in Him, became a Christian, went from being a murderer like David, only worse because he was murdering Christians right and left, to being a child of God who was the greatest evangelist, sharing the good news with people that God's grace is sufficient even for the worst of sinners. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And if God's grace can cover Paul, it can cover anybody. But we have to receive it. It's not forced upon you. You've got to receive that gift. And so Paul, that, that Paul, talked about that struggle that he has as a believer, where the things that he knows that he should do, sometimes he doesn't do them. And the things that he knows he shouldn't do, well, guess what? He often finds himself doing them. So there's this struggle, this tension, where our practice in life does not always reflect our position in Christ, yet it should. And so that leads us to what we want to talk about this morning, principles for overcoming sin. And I just kind of walked through this Psalm 51, 17 verses, and we're not going to, or actually 19 verses, sorry, we're not, we're not going to touch on every one of these verses, but I just pulled out a variety of principles. Um, you can jot these down if you'd like. I think I've got 10 of them. Some of them will resonate with you more than others. Some of them will spend more time on than others. But I just want to kind of think about in, in reverse order what David was thinking about after he came face to face with the reality of his sin, confessed it before a holy God, was made right with God in his fellowship with him, and then moved on from there. So we can see what was in David's heart under the inspiration of the Spirit as he wrote this psalm, and we can maybe take some lessons from it. And the first one is this, recognize sin for what it is. Recognize sin for what it is. Sin is an offense to our holy God, the creator of the universe. 
Self-justification, excuses, and rationalization are nowhere to be found in this Psalm of David. If you can find it, let me know, because I couldn't find it. He understood sin for what it was. He begins the psalm by saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You'll notice he uses three different Hebrew words there to describe sin. Transgressions is a Hebrew word that's used 93 times and has the idea of general wrongdoing or committing a crime. Sometimes it's used in that sense. It's usually translated transgression like it is here. The next Hebrew word is used 232 times, a far more common word for sin. It's translated iniquity here, and it has to do with guilt or anything unjust. But then the last word that he uses there is the most common word in the Hebrew language for sin, used almost 300 times, and and it just means sin the same way we talked about last week. Last week we defined sin in terms of three different uh, aspects. We said sin was missing God's mark. In the New Testament, that's the word hamartano, to miss God's mark. So if you think of a, a target... Uh, with concentric circles and you're aiming for that bullseye, anything short of perfect righteousness is missing the mark. It's sin, missing God's mark. Uh, Then we said sin is breaking God's law. Once the law was given and standards were written down, if you violate the law, I mean, sin is a matter of the heart. You, You can miss God's mark whether the law was in place or not. Adam and Eve sinned and there was no law. The law didn't come along till after the Jews left Egypt, crossed or were in the wilderness, and God met Moses on Mount Sinai. So, uh, sin is sin even before the law, but sin is further defined uh, as time went on as a breaking of the law. And then the third thing we said about sin is that it is anomia, ah meaning no or against, namas law. It is the despising of God's standard. It's the harshest word uh, for sin. And so the first principle in overcoming sin is to recognize sin for what it is. There's nothing pretty about sin. It is a violation of God's standard. It is, it is thumbing your nose at God, and it is an offense to a holy God. But a second principle that we see is this. Stop rationalizing sin. Stop rationalizing sin. In verse 3, David said, "...for I acknowledge my transgressions." That's a beautiful phrase for anyone who's just been uh, sinning. Uh, You know, David had, as I said, committed premeditated sin. He saw Bathsheba. He coveted and lusted. He made arrangements to have her. Then he knew that was wrong, so he tried to cover it up. So he made a premeditated plan to have Uriah killed. He was prideful. He rationalized his sin for a full year. But then he was confronted by Nathan, which we talked about last week. And he realized, really, the Spirit of God got a hold of him for the first time in that moment, and he confessed. And he said, I have sinned. You know, the longer we rationalize our sin, the less like sin it appears to be. Have you ever thought about that? The longer we rationalize our sin, the less like sin it appears to be. And it took God's prophet Nathan painting a picture, if you remember from last week, of the wealthy man who stole from 
the poor man, his, his little ewe lamb that had basically become like a pet instead of giving for, and, and David, when he heard that, he said, how could anybody do that? that? Let me, that off with his head, you know, and then Nathan said, you are that man. And God used that to get a hold of David. But the longer we rationalize our sin, the less like sin it appears to be. But David, as we saw last week, said in that moment, I have sinned. He stopped rationalizing it. Now, there were still consequences, um, but he, he confessed and admitted and acknowledged his sin. The problem for many Christians today, and by the way, it's a direct result of our culture and frankly most churches marginalizing sin, is that people don't want to take responsibility for their own sins. You see it all over the place. I, I read a story about a guy named Jesse Dimmick who was a fugitive facing murder charges. In September of 2009, the police found him, and he led the police on a high-speed auto chase, and he eventually crashed his stolen van in the front yard of newlyweds Jared and Lindsey Rowley's home. And he went inside the couple's home, threatened them at knife point, and kept them hostage. Well, the Rowleys kept their cool. They managed to gain Dimmick's trust by remaining calm, eating Cheetos, they said, and drinking Dr. Pepper, and watching a movie with Demick. Well, Demick eventually fell asleep. And the couple fled their house, called the police. The police came, they entered the home, they arrested Demick, who got shot in the process of this confrontation with the police, and he was sentenced to 47 years in prison. Well, he turned around and ended up suing the Rowleys. Demick did. For $235,000, $160,000 to cover his hospital bills from getting shot by the police, and $75,000 for pain and suffering. What was his claim? Well, he claimed that the Rowleys had agreed to hide him from the police in exchange for money. And he said they were, it was a legally binding oral contract, and they had reneged on the contract, so he sued them. I mean, we hear stories like that all the time. You know, a purse snatcher sprains his ankle running from the police and sues the police. A customer carelessly spills hot coffee on himself and blames the restaurant. A burglar gets stuck in an air duct trying to break into a business and sues the owner. Whatever happened to good old-fashioned responsibility? We need to stop rationalizing sin. That will help us overcome sin. Remember the words of John the Apostle in 1 John chapter. One, he said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And he's talking to believers here, by the way. You know, believers cannot be speaking truth. You know, that seems pretty self-evident. We know it's true in our own lives. But he says, so in other words, sin is a reality in the life of believers. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not talking about justification here. Remember my chart? This is not talking about our position. That's already settled. We've been had the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. But we still sin. And when we do, that sin breaks fellowship. Not relationship. We're always a child of God, but it breaks fellowship. Much like it does on the horizontal level. You know, anyone who's married knows that sometimes, you know, you, you, your husband and wife aren't 
you know, getting along very well. The husband does something that bothers the wife, or the wife does something that bothers the husband, and, 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 and attitudes, you know, flare up, and it's not a happy time. This happens on, in any relationship, parent-child, friends, you name it. But it doesn't mean the relationship isn't there. You're still husband and wife. You're still parent-child. But the fellowship is what's struggling. And that's what John is talking about here. And that's why we need to stop rationalizing sin. The third principle is this. Never forget who God is. Never forget who God is. If you want to win the battle with sin, you need to have a clear picture of who God is. And I don't think we, we really have an accurate picture of God sometimes, even as believers. We have so often created God in the image of man. And therefore, it makes it easier for us to keep on sinning, right? Notice what David says in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, you're right, God. Sin is first and foremost against God. That's what makes it sin, by the way. But that doesn't mean that our sin has no bearing on others as well. And the Bible is very clear that if, if we have offended someone, we need to go and make it right with that person. And uh, sin has consequences and Ultimately, we want to confess it before God. That's step number one. But then if our sin has caused problems for others, we need to go make that right. It's called restitution, right? But it's not until we see our sin in light of God's holiness that we will begin to be broken and win the battle against temptation. So you've got to understand what sin is. You've got to stop rationalizing it. And then you've got to understand who God is. And once we begin to see our sin in light of God's holiness, then it really becomes ugly and something that we want to avoid. If you go back to Genesis 39, there's an interesting story about Joseph. You remember Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to entice him into committing adultery? And listen to what Joseph said. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. He's speaking to Potiphar's wife. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Think about it. In other words, the thing that Joseph was worried about the most was not his reputation, not his job, losing his job from Potiphar, not going to jail, not even getting caught. What he was worried the most about was sinning against God. He knew who God was. He knew who God was. Never forget who God is. It's a fearful thing, Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of a living God. For our God is a consuming fire. So get to know God. You want to overcome the temptation to sin. You want to grow in your sanctification, your, your progressive sanctification being set apart to be more godly in your Christian life while we await the Lord's return. Well, get to know God. Focus on His goodness, His grace, His mercy, His faithfulness, but also His justice, His righteousness, His holiness. It will help us win the battle with sin. And how do you get to know God? How do you do that? It's not subjective. It's not through some dreams or visions. It's through the revealed Word of God that He's given to us. He gave us everything we need for life and godliness right here. 
as you've heard me say many times in our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So I would venture to say that those believers who are struggling with sin, maybe in a prolonged backslidden state, maybe living in carnality even, almost always are not spending time in the Word of God. They don't know who God is. They've forgotten, and they need to get back into the Word of God. That's why Psalm 119 tells us, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The fourth principle is this, remember your old nature. Remember your old nature. The contrast between our old nature and our new nature must always be in our minds. That contrast between our position in Christ as a child of the King and our old man, that pauper who was sold under sin. We need to keep that in mind. David understood that old nature because he said in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. See, he knew that he was a sinner. When we sin, we're doing what comes naturally in the flesh. And so last week I talked about this ongoing struggle between the old man and the new man. Uh, Galatians 5.17 describes it this way, The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. That's the, the picture of the heart of every believer. And the difference between mature believers and immature believers is simply maturing believers have the ability to walk in the Spirit and reflect and imitate the new man in their life. Immature believers are still going back into that old closet, pulling out those old tattered clothes and living like they're still a slave. So the flesh, as Paul goes on to describe there in Galatians 5, reflects itself in things like selfishness, enviousness, contentions, jealousy, anger, hate, all of, and it goes on and eventually it says, and anything like this, so there's not a, it's not an exhaustive list. There are many ways in which the flesh can rear its ugly head. But the Spirit reflects itself in love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and so forth. Right? So you need to remember that old nature. That will help you watch out for it. That'll help you say, oh, that's the flesh. I, I don't want to imitate that. I want to imitate Christ. The fifth principle is this. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself. When we persist in sinful rebellion against God, we're not living in reality. We're, we're, we are dreaming if we think that that circumstance is somehow sustainable. That we can live our lives apart from being connected to God in right fellowship with Him, abiding in Him is the biblical term that Jesus used and then later John used. To abide in Christ means to remain close to Him. If we think we can persist in a state separated from Him and get away with it, we're kidding ourselves. David said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Living a secret life is not living a real life. It's living a fake life. Remember what Jesus said in this context? He was speaking to the disciples, warning them about the Pharisees in particular. In fact, verse 1 says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, He began to say to His disciples, first of all, quote, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he goes on, which you see on the screen, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. 
nor hidden that will not be known. In other words, these Pharisees who set themselves up as these self-righteous, or they convinced others they were righteous, it was really self-righteous, pious, holy, dotting all their I's, crossing all their T's group of people, were really secretly just a bunch of horrific sinners and hypocrites. And Jesus says, watch out for them, because their day's coming. And then number six, I love this one. Focus on the joy of holiness. Focus on the joy of holiness. You see, the pleasure of sin is not nearly as wonderful as the joy of holiness. Seems like it is. That's what entices us in there. Remember, sin thrills. But the pleasure of sin is not nearly as wonderful as the joy of holiness. And that's why David said here in verse 8 and verse 12, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. In other words, he was when he realized his sin, realized who he was and who God was and what he had done, and stopped rationalizing it, it hurt. It affected him physically and emotionally. And he says, I want joy and gladness. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. See, what we need to understand is that there is joy in obeying God. There is joy in walking in the Spirit and yielding to the Spirit and not the flesh. Remember last week we talked about how the pleasures of sin are for but a moment. And, uh, but it, it always comes back around and chills. Uh, John, going back to John's letter in 1 John, put it this way. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then he adds, and by the way, His commandments are not burdensome. See, the devil has convinced us that God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy and that we just have to do X and Y and Z and tote the, the, the line and make sure we don't step out of line and God's just up there waiting to just you know, strike us down the minute we step out of line. That's not who God is at all. God is a God of grace and love and He wants only what's in our best interest, even going all the way back to the garden. God wasn't dangling some carrot before Adam and Eve. He was warning them out of love. He said, I love you so much. The, 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 the highest pinnacle of creation, the one that I created in my image, the only created ones in God's image, I don't want you to die. So please watch out, be careful, don't eat from that tree. And God's been warning us ever since because He loves us. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're for our own good. Um, the way of transgressors is hard, the Bible says. But those who follow His commandments, it's firm footing, firm ground. Jesus put it this way, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's His call to salvation, that first sentence. Stop working and laboring and trying to earn your way back into right standing with God. It can only come by faith. But then the second sentence here is His call to sanctification. He says, take, Having believed in me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, focus on the joy of holiness. Micah, the prophet, who was an 8th century B.C. prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, he was a contemporary of Isaiah, the famous Isaiah the prophet. He, he put it this way. You may be familiar with this verse, but I want you to notice what I've highlighted in yellow. He said, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice that first phrase there. He's shown you what is good. He didn't say, He's shown you what you have to do 
what's mandatory, what's going to be tough, but you better do it. It's good. This is good. It's good to walk justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Focus on the joy of holiness. Number seven, and this is a very important one. I imagine this will resonate with all of us. Remember the consequences of sin. Remember the consequences of sin. We talked about this last week. Sin chills and ultimately kills if left unchecked. And David says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. For David, being cast away from your presence, the consequence of sin was to to be out of fellowship with God. And again, as we've talked about, there's a difference between being part of the family of God and being in fellowship with God. We become part of the family of God by faith alone in Christ alone. That's justification. Happens one time, done deal. But even though we're part of the family of God, we can wax and wane in our fellowship and intimacy with our Savior and with our Creator God. And David felt that distance. And in fact, in David's day, the Holy Spirit was not permanently indwelling believers, so for David, the Holy Spirit would depart from him. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved. Today, the Bible is very clear, the moment we place our faith in Christ in this present age, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence until the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1. But if we kept the consequences of sin foremost in our minds, it would cut down on our sin. It would cut down on our sin. When tempted to live like the old man, remember the consequences of sin. Reminds me of the story about the, uh, the parrot. I can't remember if I told this story in here before. If I did, laugh anyway. It'll make me feel good. Uh, but that, you remember the story about the parrot that had a foul mouth. I mean, it cursed like a, a sailor. And this lady, she goes to the pet store and she fell in love with this parrot. I mean, it was cute to look at. And even though it had a terrible mouth, she said, well, I'll, I'll buy this parrot. I'll take it home and I'll, I'll teach it to, to become a Christian parrot and talk right. And so she bought the parrot, takes it home, begins training it. And sure enough, she taught the parrot to say phrases like, praise the Lord and hallelujah. Well, one day she forgot to feed the parrot, and the parrot was ticked off. And he went back to his old ways, like we sometimes do, and he started cussing like a sailor. So the lady figured she better have a consequence and teach the parrot a lesson. So she put the parrot in the freezer. And after about five or ten minutes, she took the parrot out and asked, Have you learned your lesson? And the parrot said, Yes, ma'am. Well, everything went well for a while, uh, and he went back to praising the Lord and saying Christian things. But about four or five months later, the lady once again forgot to feed the parrot. And once again, he went back to his old ways. And uh, the lady carried him out of the cage and back to the freezer and said, I told you, we're not going to have this kind of language in my house. So she put the parrot in the freezer. Unfortunately, she got distracted and forgot and it dawned on her hours later that she'd left her parrot in the freezer. So she ran into the kitchen, got the parrot out, and when it finally thawed out, she asked, Well, now have you learned your lesson? And the parrot said, Oh, yes. Yes, ma'am. But can I ask you a question? And she said, Well, sure. Yeah, what is it? He said, Boy, I thought I knew every curse word there was, but I guess I didn't. What words did that turkey in there say? So <laughs> never forget sin chills. In, in the case of the parrot, literally, right? Uh, but sin has consequences. 
And we need to remember the consequences of sin. And then number eight, and this is a good one, consider the example that you're setting. Consider the example you're setting. Before we sin, we need to remember that someone besides God is quite often watching. And so David says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. In other words, his mind, by the time he gets to verse 13 in this prayer, now he's thinking of others. Oh, man, look at the example I set. I was actually leading people away from you. I need to be a positive influence. I need to teach sinners about you and your ways. So consider the example that you're setting. And then number nine, pay attention to that twinge of guilt. Pay attention to that twinge of guilt. Learn to recognize the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. And don't ignore it. David says in verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. I mean, can you imagine David, who was, after all, a man after God's own heart, I mean, that's the comforting thing about God's Word, is that it repeatedly reminds us of His grace. And we tend to, to evaluate ourselves and others based on our performance. And we think that God likes those who perform well, and He doesn't like those who don't perform well. No, God loves us all. His love is an eternal attribute, and God is immutable. He can neither improve or deteriorate or change in any way. His love doesn't change for us one iota. In fact, it breaks his heart. He grieves. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible tells us. Um, but there are consequences. And so the Spirit of God convicts us. Jesus said he's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts us of guilt. And can you imagine David after, after he really stopped rationalizing his sin and came to grips with it, how that must have come down on him like a ton of bricks you know and and if only he had been able to to recognize that twinge on the front end it would have made a difference pay attention to that twinge of guilt and then number 10 do not allow your heart to grow cold do not allow your heart to grow cold the more we sin the easier it is to sin the next time and the more we resist sin, the easier it is to resist the next time. It's like it builds up a hardness over our heart. So every time we give in, it's easier for that sin that's willing after us to break through. But at the same time, the more we resist it, resist the devil and quote scripture and yield to the Holy Spirit instead of the old man, then that builds up a labor and it makes it harder for the devil to kind of penetrate. That's the reason that some things tempt some people, but not others, right? And it, 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 it has to do with uh, bad habits and things like that. So don't allow your heart to grow cold. In verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. We need to maintain that tender heart. Keep short accounts. You know, remember John, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not like we have to keep a list and make sure, oh, what if I forgot one? It's a heart attitude. Sin is always a matter of the heart, right? 
Sin is not our behavior. Sin is our heart. The behavior is just the manifestation of the sin. The behavior is what sin looks like. The sin is in the heart. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. If you've hated, you've committed murder because that's the sin, right? And so when we confess our sin, if we're open and honest before God, by the way, the word confess there in 1 John is the Greek word homo legeo. It's a compound word, homo, same, legeo, to speak. So it's to speak the same thing as God. It's coming to God and say, I blew it, just like David did when Nathan confronted him. I have sinned against the Lord. He admitted it. He agreed with God. He confessed it. He said the same thing God had been saying for a year. And when we do that, and we come open and, and broken with a contrite heart to God, He forgives all of our sins. We don't have to get there, rack our brains, and think, what did I do two Tuesdays to go at three in the afternoon? I want to just do a minute by minute and make sure I never sin. That's not what God's talking about. It's the attitude of the heart. If the Spirit of God brings something to our heart, that we know was wrong and it affected other people, then we also need to go make it right with other people too. But in terms of restoring that fellowship with God, it's a matter of a broken and contrite heart. So don't allow your heart to grow cold. The writer of Hebrews warned his readers of this same thing. If you remember, we went through Hebrews uh, some time ago, spent several months going through the book of Hebrews. But he said, Beware, brethren, again talking to believers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. All sin comes down to a lack of faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, the, the more you sin, the easier it is to sin the next time. And over time, your heart becomes hardened and you can quench the spirit to the point where you, it's even hard to hear the Spirit's convicting work in your life, you know, and, uh, and that's why we need to not have cold hearts. Well, our takeaway, I'm just going to highlight a few of these principles. I'm not going to go back and review all 10 of them, but these are a few of them that I think kind of stood out uh, to me. First of all, stop rationalizing your sin. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's not a weakness or a limitation. It's a sin. Secondly, get to know God better. I think that's very important. It's going to make it easier to spot your sins the more you get to know God. And you do that through time in the Word. Another one is to be open and honest before God in your prayer life. You know, Jesus in His sample prayer, which we have, I think, mistakenly institutionalized and made it this rote prayer repetitious prayer that which is exactly what Jesus was saying not to do he says when you pray don't repeat things over and over again but pray something like this our father which art in heaven and then 2,000 years later we've taken that and turned it into a rote repetition which is exactly what he said not to do but anyway notice that in his sample prayer he says forgive us our trespasses right that's one of the things we need to do is be open and honest before God in our prayer life another takeaway is to consider the example you are setting there are always eyes watching you, often little eyes or eyes of unbelievers uh, who take a look at what you're doing. And if, in the case of an adult who's an unbeliever, they may say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. Right? I've often said there are two reasons why people don't get saved. And in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, gives a lot of influences on people that keep them from believing the gospel. But ultimately, there are two reasons. The first reason is they've never met a Christian who shared the gospel with them. Second reason is they've met a Christian 
And they said, I don't want any part of that. So consider the example that you're setting. And finally, always remember that every sin has a consequence. And even though our fellowship with God can be restored by openly confessing that before Him and agreeing with Him, doesn't mean the consequences don't go away. And God can bring beautiful things out of broken things, even if we have to deal with the rest of our earthly lives with the consequence of, of, of some sin. It doesn't mean we can't go on to have an incredible, spirit-filled, valuable life before God as a believer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, passage, so rich in, in um, helpful and encouraging uh, phrases that uh, we can relate to because we're all sinners. And Lord, I pray that you'd raise up uh, in this uh, church and in, in, in this body of Christ at large, those listening uh, online, men and women who keep short accounts with you, that have open and tender hearts, and that are seeking to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't taken that first step of faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, as their only hope of salvation, that today would be the day of salvation. And in simple, childlike faith, even right now, they would express faith in you by saying something like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner who cannot save myself, so today I'm trusting in what you did for me on the cross, paying my penalty, rising from the dead, defeating death and the hell and the grave and offering to me the gift of eternal life. And I'm trusting in you for that forgiveness and eternal life. So Lord, we pray all these things now in, in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.